The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, November the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we get going today, just one more reminder that Pat Leahy and I will be in Dublin's Workman's Club this Friday for a live podcast double bill with the people from the What Am Politics podcast. It's all part of the Dublin Podcast Festival, and our special guest is going to be the Belfast Newsletter's political editor, Sam McBride, whose book Burned, the inside story of the Cashfarash scandal and Northern Ireland's secretive new elite, has been receiving rave reviews. So that's on Friday evening, November the 22nd, and for more information, go to dublinpodcastfestival.ie. And in a little while, we'll be joined by Remain activist Roz Taylor to discuss last night's UK general election leaders debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And first, I'm joined by our Dublin editor, Olivia Kelly, and political reporter, Jennifer Bray, to discuss two rather different ongoing political controversies. One is about plans for social and affordable housing at O'Devany Gardens in Dublin, and the other is about the comments about migrants by Fine Gael's Wexford by-election candidate, Verona Murphy. O'Devany Gardens first, Olivia. What's the backstory of this? It's been rumbling on for more than a decade, isn't it? People will remember the collapse of the public-private partnership uh, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's been a terrible saga. It really has, particularly for, for the, the people who lived there and the people who live around it still. Um, it was, yeah, they, they'd been hoping to read. It's a 1950s estate and really has had its day and they've been hoping to redevelop it for God, more than 20 years now, but they would have, would have come in the sort of early to mid-2000s with a plan for its redevelopment. They 2006, they chose their developer, it was Bernard McNamara at the time, and uh, then they, uh, and again, it, was, it, it had been only social housing, it had been 278 flats. Council flats of council the old flats. kind that people yeah, were near yeah. Phoenix Park. Yeah. But while uh, while that sounds quite big, it was actually quite a low density scheme. And even though they were in flats up to, to five storeys, uh, there was an awful lot of wasted space around it, similar to what we had in Ballymun, really. So what they thought was then, we, we'll we'll get rid of all those flats, who, you know, with problems with sewage, problems with damp, mould, all that sort of thing. And we'll rebuild a new estate of social and private housing. And it will be around 800 um, houses, apartments mixed. Bernard McNamara, then the the deal with Bernard McNamara was done in 2006. And then the, uh, you know, the, the, the legals and everything that goes on. By the time we got to 2008 and it was looking like construction should be starting. It was 2008. It was 2008. Mm. The the bottom fell out of the property market. Um, it turned the the equation for for Bernard McNamara was he wouldn't be able to sell his private houses at a price that would compensate him for what he'd have to pay to build the the social housing. So he walked off the pitch. It all fell apart. The council tried itself to come up with different schemes to um, to to redevelop parts of it itself, but it just never had the money, and it, it just it descended into chaos. And by they had been rem, uh, moving tenants out in the period between two thousand and six and two thousand and eight. So there was a lot of empty uh, flat blocks there in two thousand and eight. 
and they just kept on being set on fire and there was all sorts of stuff going on. So they had to start demolishing them. So does that mean they had to move everybody out? They had just gone so far down the process that the place wasn't. When I say you had to move everyone out, it took them, you know, the bones of the next decade to get everyone out of those flats. So you had people living in really horrible conditions with, you know, uh, burnt out cars all over the place, you know, just. It was. It really became a terrible, terrible place, um, and they only finally uh, demolished all of it. I think in a. It would have been about a year ago. The last. The last couple of blocks. Uh, there were thirteen blocks originally, and the last cu- couple of blocks went went only a year ago, after they they got everyone out. So what we have here, at the moment is. We have a a huge, uh, big levelled area, but they have started building some new social housing. They've started building 56 uh, social homes for people who had been living in those flats. And it won't all be people who have been living in the flats because a lot of them moved on, uh, but it'll be people from the social housing waiting list. And I think the real risk here is if if if, if building doesn't start on the rest of it, You'll have these people living on what is still a wasteland. And uh, one of our our colleagues, uh, Connor Pope, uh, posted a picture the other night again of burnt out cars and bonfires on this Mm. this land. You know, it's it's always been problematic and it's not going to be helped if it's left idle. And so tell us, what is the current plan and why is it stalling or why is it the subject of controversy? Well, I'll I'll tell you first why it's become so complicated. And I'd, I'd say, you know... A lot of people, anyone I speak to, finds it hard to get their head around it. But it is quite simple, really. In 2017, in January 2017, the uh, after two years the, of, of developing a deal with the councillors, the councillors and the council uh, came to an agreement that several estates, including O'Devery Gardens, would be developed for uh, 50% private housing, 30% social housing and 20% affordable housing for sale under a new affordable housing scheme that the government had been promising. So that was the general scheme for O'Devney Gardens. So what's happened now and why the controversy has arisen again is they've now chosen the developer after the you know going through a big long public procurement process. They've chosen the developer who will build out the scheme and that's Bartra. And people might have heard of them from the the co living out in in Dunleary, another scheme that the, that uh, yeah, another has very controversial yeah, scheme. Exactly, yes, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, they're they're the people who put it together. The the council says the best bid, so they were chosen. Now, if the public procurement process wasn't so damn slow, and that had been done before the local elections, I think it's very likely that that just would have sailed through. Barter would have been chosen. And I'd say a lot of local election candidates would have been on the, the doorstep, on the canvas, saying, look at this wonderful thing I've done. There I've brought through Devon Garden. All that sort yeah. of thing. Now, it didn't happen like that. So it's after the local elections and the makeup of the councillors on the council is very different. So the people who were leading the council last time, who were championing this deal back in 2017, they are no longer leading the council. And who were they? They are Sinn Féin. So Sinn Féin uh, decided now they don't like this deal anymore. Now, they will tell you that the reason they don't like it is they don't like the Bartra deal. That uh, they will say that the Bartra deal is costing the council too much, that the affordable houses on it won't be affordable. Now, the council have said, and they've put this in writing, that the maximum price for the affordable purchase 
houses on, on the site will be 310,000, but there will be others in the mid 200s, 270, 250 to 270. Um, but Sinn Féin say, no, no, this is too expensive. But they're also now saying it should be one third, one third, one third uh, uh, social housing, uh, uh, affordable purchase and affordable rental. And they think the private should all be out of it now. But that's not what they were happy to vote on in January so 2017. So what has changed in their view? In in them wanting the the, yeah. the, the private gone. Yeah. Well, well, they have no real, they haven't put anything to, together that I think is credible for that. I suppose We're there is there an should argument no that private. the housing situation and particularly provision of social and affordable housing has got worse and worse and worse in Dublin. So yeah, perhaps whatever measures they, you they, take they need can, to be more extreme. They can say that, but... Uh, yeah, perhaps they do. But the in you know January 2017 is not all that long ago when we were in the middle of a housing crisis. At that point, the housing crisis had been rearing its head since you know 2014, 2015. So they could have made that, uh, and and a lot of the left, the hard left parties on the council did make that pitch That's back then. People before profit and people before uh, solidarity. Uh, Ayla uh, the uh, workers, party. workers' party, who's now who's since uh, who lost her seat, but she would have been because she's a the the local councillor there would have been she would have been at the time. She very strongly put together that pitch, um, and um, but that's not what the majority. And f- remember, fifty three of the sixty three councillors voted for this back in January twenty seventeen. You know, it, w- it was widely held as the way to go. And. I said it's a matter of controversy, but there is still a majority on the council which has voted in favour of this. And in a way, yeah. all due respect to Sinn Féin, who cares what they think? Because they're not yeah. in the controlling majority anymore. Sure yeah. So what what happened was the the um, the barter deal was meant to be agreed in October. It wasn't. The, the councillors, the new ruling group on the council who are now, uh, and they call themselves the Dublin Agreement Group, and who they are is... Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. It's catchy. Uh, it's, uh, it's Fianna Fáil, it's the, the Greens, it's Labour, and it's the, the Social Democrats. So they said, oh, well, we, we want more time to, to try and to talk to Bartra and see if we can, you know, get a bit more in, in terms of non, non-private housing on it. Um, so they came back and they said, yeah, we've, um, we've, we've spoken to Bartra. And Bartra said they'd be willing to sell us um, a portion of the private for, uh, for use for... Now, this is where things do get a bit complicated. I've spoken to you already about affordable purchase. So they're saying now, in addition to the affordable purchase, so that's for people to who are who are on middling incomes. That's like the two hundred and fifty thousand or something mid two hundred zero dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they would yeah. be a, they would get a state subsidy to be able to oh, okay. buy. Mm-hmm. So the, the, what they are talking about with Bartra now is that they would get more for a affordable rental. So that would be people who are maybe not quite at the level or don't want to buy. Um, who would but are still workers who aren't eligible for social housing, mm-hmm. so they would be able to rent there. In, in, and so, so Bartra said, kind of, oh yeah, we, we'd, be del- we'd be delighted to to sell you. In fact, we'd sell how, you the whole lot. We'd sell nice, you all how, the fifty percent. How, how nice of them is there? A yeah. 
there's a catch. They, they, they've written a letter saying at a price to be agreed by the tenderer and by the tenderer, they mean themselves. OK, so they name their price. Uh, okay. If they name their price, yeah. that's fine. They can, sure, what developer wouldn't do that? What developer mm-hmm. wouldn't sell, you know, upfront before they even start building and then they can pay back their 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 bankers and, you know, why wouldn't you? And they probably would give a discount because if they're going to get to sell a, a large amount in bulk, they, they would get a discount because Devney Gardens is still always going to be a risky prospect. Like, are you going to make, is, is the market going to change? Are you going to make your money back on your private sales? Will people want to live in a an estate that does still have a large proportion, more than the average? The average of, of, of a new private estate for social housing is 10 percent. So it it would be 30% social housing. And a lot of people would find that unpalatable. And we also don't know, don't we, that these days developers are very keen to sell their new developments as a job lot for yes. buy-to-rent buy corporations who yeah. buy the and, entire block. And you rent. see, they, they wouldn't be able to do that with this one because the council wouldn't let them do that. Mm. Wouldn't let them sell it off for either student accommodation okay. or a, or a, or a, a built-to-rent scheme. Olivia, I... I know that you observe the goings on at the council with, let's let's say, a sceptical eye um, or critical eye, an objective eye. Um, is this all a load of codswallop? Is it just a bunch of posturing and will the thing just go through? Or is there anything kind yeah, of Yeah, when you say with, with the thing, effectively the thing has gone through. Has gone through. through because whether this barter deal on the, ex, on the extra, on the affordable rental, whether that ever happens or, or, or not, that does not affect. And even the Dublin Agreement... Uh, crowd, the, the Lord Mayor uh, Paul McAuliffe, who's Fianna Fáil, he has said that that it, oh, it, this this agreement with Bartra would not compromise what the council have voted on. And the council have voted on the deal. Okay. So the councillors, that's the councillors' role. The, the management come to them, they put a deal to them in relation to the site. The councillors vote on it. They've done that. They've approved that now. Their role is at an end. So it's now it's back now, to the city officials. It's now for Owen Keegan and his team to implement. Mm. And, and that's it. And the councillors can shout and drum their heels in the ground and do whatever they want. But their role is effectively at an end. I, I got a bit of the impression that Owen Murphy, who obviously has had a torrid time as the minister responsible for mm. this subject over the last few years, there was a touch of schadenfreude there. He was kind of looking down his nose at these goings on because for once it sort of takes the heat off him and shows that, you know, it's it's tricky and it's messy and you wouldn't necessarily get a more coherent policy if somebody else was Yeah, I, I think he should have left this one alone. I really do. He he sent a letter to the, to the council saying, well, I'm not going to fund any of this Bartra deal, whatever it is you come up with. I've already agreed to fund the, the, the deal as agreed, the 50-20-30 deal, deal. And I don't know what you're doing now, but... Uh, you know that that's that's not what I agreed to. He didn't have to say that. You know, he didn't have to hammer that home because, as I say, the thing was agreed. Mm. the The thing was agreed. He could have just let it slide, and and you know, nothing particular ever happened on it. I wonder, Jennifer, about that. I mean, the the, the Dublin Agreement, which mm. which Olivia described there, very much looks like the party political shape that could form uh, the next government um, should Fine Gael not be not be in power. Is there a touch of Owen Murphy just getting a dig in first there? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, of course, but I do think there is another element to it, and and it's the point that that has already been touched on, which is the fact that this extra 30% that would be affordable rental and the fact that this, you know, those properties that are sold go at the rent to be determined by the tenderer. I mean, how could they ever be 
uh, cost rental? How could that ever apply if they're being sold at market rates? And I think that's one of the points that he was making. He was saying that not only is the funding not available, but it's not actually possible to have these units at the, the level that the councillors say. Well, another reason that it's not possible to have these units is there is no affordable rental scheme. The government hasn't come up with one yet, despite promises over years. A very good point. You, you know, the affordable purchase scheme is further ahead in the in the development, but that isn't even in place yet. So the, the council are developing an estate now or will develop an estate now for an affordable purchase scheme that doesn't actually in reality exist yet because while the legislation has gone through the regulations of how it'll work, they haven't been developed yet. But the you know, they've done little pilots on the on the on the cost rental, the affordable rental. But yeah, there is no no scheme in place for it. So a lot of this is just like fairyland. Jennifer, you were down at the covering the Wexford um, by-election campaign. Is housing a big issue in Wexford? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was surprised because of the, there is this concept that the the housing crisis is, well, it is at its most acute, I think, in in city areas, but that outside in, in more rural areas, that it's it's not that much of, a, of an issue, but it clearly is in Wexford. The price of rent has gone up. Um, salaries tend to be lower outside of the capital. And um, there is the same issues in terms of different generations of families now living in the same house, homelessness, people waiting on the social housing list. That's all in Wexford. And it came up on a lot of the doors that I was at when I went out canvassing with different candidates last Friday. Now, one of the candidates you went out with, of course, was uh, Verona Murphy, the, uh, the Fine Gael candidate, mm. um, who has been in the news a lot uh, yes. over the last over the last few days. Um, some of the things she said to you um, seemed fairly unusual, if not outrageous. And she said similar things to RTE and similar things to the, the local paper, the Wexford People. These people are coming from such war-torn countries that, in essence, they have to be deprogrammed, for the want of a better word, but through support services. They carry angsts that you wouldn't ordinarily see, possibly infiltrated by ISIS, and we have to protect ourselves against that. But there are support systems in place to do that, but I think they have to be available as much as the accommodation. Um. Do you think this was a an electoral ploy on her part? I don't think so, no. I mean, um, it struck me that when I went out with her on Friday, on Friday afternoon, we were probably around six minutes into the canvas when she made comments about migration. Now, okay. I, I did ask her. Um, she didn't bring them up unprompted. And at this stage, she was running between one housing estate and the other. There were kids uh, coming out of school. She was running around shaking as many hands as she possibly could. The, it didn't strike me that these comments were premeditated. Or that they were said in a in a in a way that was designed to garner votes. It did strike me that these were her genuinely held beliefs. And what exactly did she say to you? So I asked her if she, on her campaign, had experienced any anti-migrant sentiment, or if this was an issue in Wexford. And she said yes. She said that there is an, uh, this idea that people have that um, asylum seekers are taking housing from um, people who are living in Wexford and, and from Wexford. And she said that couldn't be further from the truth. So. Everything was, you know, pretty pretty normal up until that point. And then she said that in relation to Uchtarar, which is the direct provision centre, the plans for that, which which didn't go ahead, she said she understood a lot of the concerns that had been raised because the services weren't there. And then she said that she was under no doubt, um, and it was no doubt in her mind that ISIS was a large part, a big part of the migrant population and that um, this is something that had to be taken into account. So I, I kind of was su- surprised by those comments and she said that services were needed to, and the quote was, alleviate that type of indoctrination. 
So, you know, they're they're pretty strong comments, for want of a better word. Um, and, and not accurate either. No, there's no basis, in fact, for these claims. I've researched and I don't, it doesn't take that much research to, to know that there there is no basis, in fact. And she didn't provide a basis, in fact, um, f- for those opinions. Um, and, you know, I, I was surprised when I heard it. It genuinely struck me that this is something she said before, when she said it, and that it was something that she had thought about and this is where she had landed. Um, and we continued on with the canvas. We spoke about a couple of other things, homelessness, like you say, housing. And the plan was, and, and I've had a few tweets from people saying, why didn't you run this story until the week after? We had a plan in the politics team to run a series on each of the constituencies where there's a by-election this week for the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And so that was the plan. And then over the weekend, on the Sunday, she went on RT News um, on their, their weekend this week programme. This week yeah. programme, yeah, thank you. And she she made very, very similar comments again and she said that, you know, um, a, a lot of the asylum seekers may need to be reprogrammed and that they carry angst that other people wouldn't have. And those comments immediately landed her in hot water. And when I heard them, I was at home on Sunday and I remembered what she said to me on Friday. And uh, I thought, I was actually surprised that she'd repeated them again, um, to be honest, on, on RT. But there, but there we have it. So then obviously it became a massive issue on Monday and Tuesday and indeed on Sunday. And we put our piece out online on the Monday and uh, we th- think we put it out in the afternoon and immediately I had panicked phone calls from people in Fine Gael asking me, could this possibly be true? Did she actually say this? And um, uh, well, the answer obviously is yes. We, we had the, we've got the audio, all of that. And, and there was a real sense of panic um, about what to do about these claims um, and, and, and these opinions. So this kind of developed over the course of Monday and all of a sudden, everybody's phone went off. All the, Even the usual offenders who speak off the record, nobody answered the phone. Nobody answered texts. Nobody answered WhatsApps. Everything to voicemail. No comment from the press office. No comment from the Taoiseach spokesman. And I knew something was going on. I just thought they were formulating a line. Um, I was just waiting to, to hear what that was. So then on Monday night, uh, it emerged that she had been, uh, Verona Murphy I should say, um, had been brought to a asylum and emergency centre in Dungarvan and Waterford and along with Charlie Flanagan and afterwards she released a statement and she said that after her experience um, speaking to, to these asylum seekers she was deeply moved and realised that her views on, on, um, on, the, on the issue were wrong and Charlie Flanagan released a pretty strong statement in which he said that her, her her comments had been based on misinformation. Um, Given and that she was talking about Syria, it's ironic that she had this road to Damascus, isn't it? At the, it is, it yeah. is. And there are there have been serious questions raised about the decision to bring her to that centre when these were the views that she had held only hours beforehand. And the fact that the, her, the campaign is being run by Charlie Flanagan, Minister yes. for Justice, who is obviously responsible for these centres yeah. and who then facilitated this very quick visit in order to... Uh, to use to actually to use her own words in a different context to deprogram her of the, of these views she had expressed earlier. Exactly, yeah, and and you know when that emerged emerged quite late Monday night, and we saw then immediately online people like Brendan Howland saying that this was wrong, and and um, you know calling out the the shock, and, and he did so again yesterday, and you know there was a sense of crisis, and it was you know how does the party keep their candidate in the race? but also distance themselves from these claims. And this became the big issue then yesterday. When we went into the doll yesterday morning, did all the Tuesday morning doorsteps with the different parties, this was the this was the issue that emerged. But then it also, a third interview came out. And this was an interview with the Wexford people. 
And in that interview, she said that children as young as three or four may have been manipulated by ISIS. Um, and she made comments about, about homelessness and um, being down to oftentimes addiction and, and personal choices. And they drew a lot of controversy. So then the, the focus was squarely on Leo Varadkar. How would he handle this? How would he deal with this? And would he deselect the candidate? And uh, he didn't. And how did he deal with it? What did you think of his performance on the issue in the Dáil? Well, first he was out in, and this is another thing, actually, he was out in, in Glendalough and Wicklow announcing the, the big news, the great news, the broadband plan, completely and totally overshadowed by this. Say they were all gritting their teeth. They were raging, hopping mad. So, like, it reminded me back when there was election and people were full of adrenaline and anger and all these emotions. That's how people were yesterday on the phone, privately. Um, so he, he was asked there and he said that he had spoken to Verona Murphy, that he had told her her comments were wrong. Um, and that he was, she was staying in the race and he was going to go canvassing with her. A lot of surprise, I think, and a lot of anger in the party. The problem is, it's too late to deselect the candidate. But how do you distance yourself from it without effectively doing that? You know, so this this was the issue. He was in the Dáil then yesterday afternoon and was asked by a very um, angry Breed Smith um, what he was, would he not deselect? And she said to him, how high is your bar? And his response was, well, I think of all people, I know a little bit more about racism than you, um, which seemed to impress his backbenchers and, to be fair, is probably obviously a valid comment. Um, But he he said he'd pointed towards other elements of her interview with the Wexford people where she spoke about her own experience of homelessness when she was, uh, she had had a falling out with her family when she was quite young, she became pregnant and she had a very difficult time. She worked every hour under the sun, she worked at McDonald's. She she did everything she could to support her 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 daughter. And he kind of spoke about this this character building and, and the the other side of Verona Murphy basically. And then said, but yeah, her comments were wrong, um, and that that was it really. So that's where we that's where it was left as of yesterday afternoon. Um, now it's far from over because that there was a plan laid out. I understand for Verona Murphy's campaign. Over the next few days, uh, I'm told that Simon Coveney was due to go canvassing with her today in Wexford. I don't know if that's happening. I asked a spokesman last night, I didn't respond. Um, I'm told that there's various different ministers who were scheduled, as would be the normal case uh, for a government party in a by-election, to go out and support their candidate. I don't know if that's happening and whether it's good strategy or good politics to do that. Um, and then on Saturday, there, I understand, is a meeting of the party's executive council where I... I'm told that this was, will undoubtedly feature. So um, what, what will happen? I don't know. And I wonder, I mean, you know, it doesn't want to intrude too much into the private grief of Fine Gael, but I do wonder about certain things. I mean, if, if you choose somebody, this is a person who had a public profile themselves previously as um, president of the World Hauliers Association, as associated with the party, but obviously not an active or elected party member, not a councillor. If you're going to make that decision, is there not some equivalent of quite an in-depth job interview? And in that job interview, would you not explore what people's views were and what they'd be saying to the electorate? Should they be selected? And would something like this not come up? I would have thought so. I would have thought that any candidate running, especially for the government party, um, would have been, not vetted is the wrong word, but have their opinions thoroughly teased out. Yes. You know, you would think that. That doesn't seem to have happened because if it had have happened, this wouldn't have happened. Finnegan wouldn't be in the very tricky position they're in now. Um, uh, there is some talk that um, in future by-election candidates may be asked to sign a pledge or some party pledge or something like that. I don't know, but um, it, it's a valid question. And 
by all intents and purposes, it looks like it didn't happen. And then the other thing is, uh, this is the second time that we've seen a by-election candidate uh, go along to uh, a, a centre um, of people who they have insulted in one way or another because we had the same with the, with the Fianna Fáil candidate in, yes, in Dublin North. Um, you can't keep doing that, can you? That's happened twice now. Twice is about enough. It's all very, you know, mm. it's, all, it's all like a bad satire, isn't it? Well, I mean, the problem is if you, in, like, and obviously you're talking about Lorraine Clifford Lee in, in, in Fingal, that the problem is if you, if you're in this system in politics where this new standard exists that you say something that offends a lot of people um, and very, usually the most vulnerable people, and then if you just apologise afterwards that it's fine, you're basically normalising that rhetoric and you're saying it's okay and it won't affect your prospects as a candidate. And you're, you know, and, and that's the issue here. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, where do you draw the line? Is it just the case that everybody can have a road to Damascus by visiting a centre or, or, or a disadvantaged group and say, I think differently now than I have thought my whole entire yeah. life. Hallelujah, I've seen the light. People aren't that gullible, but the problem is, is normalising the rhetoric. That is the issue here. And then and the last part of this is that for the first time, I think, over the last 18 months, two years, since, since Peter Casey's performance in the presidential election and a couple of other incidents, the Noel Grealish uh, incident in the Dáil uh, less than two weeks ago, we're starting to see ferment about immigration starting to bubble up from from the netherworld of the internet, I suppose, onto the kind of the, the public platforms of political discourse. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, will that have any impact, for example, in Wexford on, yeah. on Verona Murphy's vote? And that's a question everybody's asking, um, including news editors. What impact is this having? I don't know. Um, but we'll find out on polling day and it will be so interesting to see. Because honestly, following Verona Murphy around on the campaign trail last Friday, I thought she got a fantastic reception. She was really well received, especially by women who kind of said, yeah, you know, it's been a boys club in Wexford for too long. You go, girl, basically. And um, she she communicated really well. And there are people who said they didn't want to vote. And she gave them a really good kind of, you know, a list of reasons why it's better to vote for the person, even if it's not her than not to vote at all. And I found her very impressive in that way. So I, I think that there was a feeling on the ground that she'd run and was running a really effective campaign and that she was at the fore to potentially um, take a seat from the expected winner, which is who was um, Malcolm Byrne mm. of Fianna Fáil. Which Fall, would have been a fantastic result for Fianna Gael, Which would have been fantastic. Mm. So if, if we see now that this has been dented at the polls, will that reflect public mood on, on whether people agree with those sentiments? Probably. Um, and we'll look as well at Lorraine Clifford Lee and see did that controversy involving her will that affect her? So really, the only time we'll properly know is on polling it's day. Is see the polling day. The, yeah. the other part of this, of course, is that wherever by people who vote directly for her, both for both those candidates, their transfers might be quite badly affected because if they'd be looking for transfers from parties of the the left and the centre left, who might be those voters might be kind of more turned off by that, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. And and I mentioned Malcolm Byrne there in uh, from Gorey, the Fianna Fáil. Um, councillor who who did quite well in the European elections, he, when he goes around to the door, says he's very aware of this and he says, because some candidates go, give me your number one, give me your number one. He says, give me your number one. But if you definitely won't give me your number one, absolutely give me your number two. So like there are the other candidates in the race are very, very aware of that point. Livy, could I ask you for a last thought on this? Because because you're covering politics at a local level mm. far more than, than, than most people here. In theory, if we were to see this change happening from a ground up, you know, a, a, a greater 
tension around subjects of migrant communities and yeah. stuff. You, you, you would expect to see it at local politics level. Do we see it in Dublin? You, you I, I can see um, from from uh, councils around the country how you do see it, but you you really don't see it on on Dublin City Council. You know, there there's there's a there's a quite a proportion of the hard left that that there maybe isn't in other you know in other parts of the country. So, so maybe that has that occupies maybe, a popular space. Maybe, maybe that, it does. Yeah, right. but you you you. I can think of no. I can think of no one. Like there are you know there are the. The, the party blocks and then there's a, a huge clatter of independents as well. There's a, 11 of them, I think, on, on the city council and they're, they're largely left leaning. But even the ones who aren't know that this is the sort of sentiment I've, you know, I've, I've really never heard expressed on, on the city council or I have to say in any of the Dublin local authorities uh, areas either. That's very interesting. Well, so we shall see, test the temperature of all this in the by-elections, which happen, of course, on Friday, Friday, uh, Friday, Friday of next week. So looking forward to that. Thanks very much to Olivia and Jennifer for coming in. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ugh. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. Now, with three weeks to go to the UK general election, last night saw the first head-to-head televised debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. That hour-long debate has been widely reported as a no-score draw, basically, an analysis which seems to be largely supported by the snap overnight polling of audience reaction. But what, if anything, did we learn from it? And will Johnson succeed in his aim of making this election, first and foremost, all about Brexit? I am joined by Ros Taylor, who, as well as editing the London School of Economics Brexit blog, is also a co-presenter of the Romaniacs podcast. And if you're not familiar with Romaniacs, the name is pretty self-explanatory. Roz, I do want to ask you in a minute about where the whole anti-Brexit movement now stands in the UK. But first of all, what did you make of last night's debate? It was a pretty dismaying spectacle, to be honest, to watch two people who I would say um, roughly half of the uh, of the British population despised Boris Johnson and roughly half of them if not more despised Jeremy Corbyn and it was it was dismaying not to see Jo Swinson there I thought she should have been the Lib Dem leader and it was a very unedifying sight we didn't get to we didn't get see anything new and we certainly didn't see uh, any detail on what they really want to do. Not to turn this into a TV review, but I found the format very unhelpful where you had these big questions and big issues and uh, then uh, the moderator cut across the questions very quickly. And then I thought Boris Johnson made a mess of that because he kept talking across her, which came across pretty badly as well. Yeah, it really didn't work very well at all. You had the sense that she was trying to control it and keep everything, uh, make sure that no one overran their time. But the result was that it wasn't at all spontaneous. They never really got a chance to take each other on. And that was what I was hoping to see. That's one of the problems with the uh, Q&A format when you have audiences asking questions, that they're not actually forced to confront each other. Something a lot of people have commented on, rightly, I think, was something which I've never really seen in a debate of this sort before, was the audience laughing, not with, but at both of, of, of these politicians, derisively, in fact, at times when Boris Johnson was talking about his commitment to truth and Jeremy Corbyn was talking about the clarity of his position on Brexit. Does the truth matter in this election? I think it does. And I, I think it's very important. <laughs> I think it's very important to hear from... I've been very clear... 
Yeah, that's right. I hadn't heard that bit before as well. I'm wondering if it's an expression of people's incredible cynicism now about their politicians and particularly about politicians whom they really do despise, I think, in many cases. In the past, you know, politicians are often hated. That goes with the territory. But you haven't had people who've been in power either for such a short time, as with Johnson, or not in power at all, as with Corbyn, and not not, not prime minister yet and probably not likely to be, who get who inspire this reaction in people who inspire this utter derision now the other thing that's striking and we know this of course it was an expression of what we've been seeing in the campaign so far is that boris johnson wants to make it all about brexit and corbyn wants to make it about everything except brexit um how did that play out uh not particularly well i thought that um Corbyn uh, struggled uh, rather on Brexit. And the reason he struggled was that he could not answer a fairly straightforward question, which was that when he negotiates a deal, which he's promised to do after three months and then put it to a second referendum, um, where the, the question would be, do you want this deal or do you want Remain? He could not say whether he would back his own deal or whether he would back Remain. We don't know on which side Mr Corbyn would campaign. Briefly, I've Mr. made the position clear. We will have a referendum, we will have a negotiation, and we will abide by that result. And that's a really, really bad look. It just looks atrocious to say, well, I've gone to Brussels, I've got all this energy, you know I'm a Eurosceptic already, because everyone knows he's a Eurosceptic, and I still can't tell you whether I would back the very deal that I endorsed, uh, the, the, the back the very deal that I negotiated. That looks really pathetic. And that meant that on Brexit, Johnson had him on the back foot on that. And that was apparent right from the beginning. And I think that was when people really began to start to laugh at Corbyn. Just one last question on the sort of performative element of it, I suppose. We're led to believe that Boris Johnson was a star in university, largely because of his performances in the Oxford Union, which is one of the most you know, famous debating societies in the world. I was looking at him last night. He wouldn't do well at my kids' school debates on that basis. <laughs> no, he was really poor. And that's because he has the register for that particular kind of debate for an Oxford Union debate. And the Oxford Union is not the British public. It's it's all, the Oxford Union is all about showing off and throw casual little asides and maybe a bit of Latin quotation and lots and lots of in-jokes. And that doesn't come across. That doesn't work when you're a politician because you have to speak to ordinary people. And he can't actually do that. This is the extraordinary thing about Boris Johnson and his, you know, supposed great appeal to the general public. They they look at him and they see a man who smiles a lot and they see a man who grins a lot and is jovial, but he can't actually talk to them and he can't actually reach them. And especially what is missing is anything inspirational in what he talks about. It's all so throwaway. It's all so, oh, this is, this is a huge joke. And, you know, I think that Boris Johnson's real problem is going to come when he has a real crisis. And the floods in the north of England were a bit of a uh, problem for him. He didn't react to those fast enough. He didn't do it adequately. But when he has a serious crisis, which all prime ministers have sooner or later, he will struggle to rise to that. And he will struggle to get across the gravitas and inspire the trust that he needs to do. I mean, I fully understand why you wanted to see Joe uh, Joe Swinson there um, last night. But is it not the case when you, I mean, we look at Jeremy Corbyn with all the flaws which you've described, including the, the incredible vagueness of his position on Brexit, is, is that ultimately from the political position you occupy, he is your last best hope. He is at least promising a people's vote. 
Well, he is promising a people's vote and the Remain movement, it's fair to say, is very torn on this. Um, there are lots of people uh, whom I respect who think that uh, we really have to vote for Jeremy Corbyn and that is our last best hope. And I'm in the fortunate position personally where I don't have to make a very difficult decision uh, and whether, on whether to vote tactically. And I'm very grateful for that because it's extremely difficult. I, Corbyn is fundamentally a Eurosceptic and I don't think he could necessarily get a much better deal from Brussels than the one that Johnson has obtained because he doesn't want freedom of movement. And people say we've seen some freedom of movement action over the last few weeks. I don't think we have. I don't think he's changed his position on that. And unless he accepts freedom of movement, uh, we can't be in the single market. And we, unless we're in the single market, we're not going to get a strong deal with Europe. So, yeah, it's it's been an incredible problem for uh, the Remain movement generally, his, um, his unwillingness to back the uh, freedom of movement. But isn't the reality, though, that, you know, he's surrounded on his front bench, including the people in the key positions, his deputy leader, his Brexit secretary and so on, by people who who have a different position from he has. And even more so, I mean, realistically, uh, we were discussing on this podcast John Curtis's analysis of of the the prospects of a Labour majority last week, which are as close to zero as as, as you can get in in those kinds of numbers, that if Jeremy Corbyn does end up being prime minister, he's going to be prime minister in a coalition or a minority government supported by the SNP and the Lib Dems. So what Jeremy Corbyn says isn't necessarily what happens. Exactly. And that was one of the problems last night. He was very clear that he would not be going effectively going into um, coalition with the Scottish National Party, because as, as we all know, the price of Nicola Sturgeon's cooperation would be the promise of another referendum on Scottish independence. And he said, no, we will not have that. I will not do that. And we all know he would. We all know he would. And we also know that um, he would have to go into a coalition with the Lib Dems as well, which, on the part of point of view of Jo Swinson, she has been very adamant that she will never go into a coalition with Labour. So it's extremely... Uh, everybody knows that that's the only way through, but nobody will admit that it's the only way through. And it is part of the general problem with truth-telling in this campaign, that nobody can be upfront and honest about it because there is so much mutual loathing on the part of the electorate towards the politicians. Can I ask you something? I mean, it's no secret that the Irish Times' position is pretty anti-Brexit. In fact, it's no secret that the vast majority of population in Ireland are anti-Brexit and would rather that this thing had never happened. But there's been a growing sense in the last um, couple of months among people who who are anti-Brexit that Brexit kind of has to happen at this stage. And one of the reasons why people are thinking that, I think of a column by my colleague Rowan McCormick about two or three weeks ago, is a sort of exasperation with the Remain movement and at its failure to uh, to mount a coherent uh, political response to the hard Brexiteers and to coalesce around a, you know, a single agenda and to reflect what is, if not the majority will of the people, at least very close to it. In fact, most polls show it is. And that political failure has left people, and we saw this with Leo Varadkar's agreement with Boris Johnson in, in, in Cheshire, has left people saying, well, you know, the... The, the best of all possible bad worlds is probably Boris Johnson's deal. Well, it's curious you should say that because I actually think many Remainers are open to compromise and uh, many of them would be 
reasonably happy with a Norway-style deal when uh, even perhaps uh, with just being in the customs union. But that hasn't been an, an option. It has always been a choice between a um, hard Brexit deal and even Theresa's May, uh, Theresa May's deal was a hard Brexit and Boris Johnson's deal is an even harder Brexit and no deal. And that's what we've been opposing. Um, to suggest that you know we haven't been a, a capable of compromise is, is, I think, not the case. It's just that there has never been, ever since the referendum, the uh, agenda has turned harder and harder. And where once a single market was, you know, a single market option was entirely thinkable, then it became unthinkable because the Conservative Party's right wing and the DUP, of course, were so adamantly opposed to that. And it, one of the frustrating things for us is that we're um, portrayed as being intransigent and we can't, you know, we can't change our minds. And that is not the case. I think had had the Conservative Party been able to compromise and come up with a deal which better reflected that 52-48 margin, which would have been staying in the single market, people would have compromised and we would have been effectively out of the EU by now. But they didn't. They went harder and harder and harder. And that's why the fight back was as strong as it has been. I sort of accept all that. But I suppose another way of looking at it is that um, over here in Ireland, in a perverse kind of a way, perhaps, we take some comfort in the fact that Boris Johnson is a complete liar on the basis that if he does actually win this election in December, and he is, you know, he is the favourite after all, that all this nonsense about how um, they're going to be out at the end of 2020 and they won't seek an extension to the transition period and that, uh, it's all rubbish. If he has a big enough majority, he'll do whatever is required. And that perhaps underneath that, uh, that hard Brexit hair beats a soft Brexit heart. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure it does. Uh, Boris Johnson doesn't really believe in Brexit, to be honest. Uh, he never has. He merely took the route in 2016 that seemed to him most likely to bring him into power. And ultimately, it has. It has worked. He has played a reasonably long game. And uh, he is now prime minister, which is precisely what he wanted. We all know that he backed Theresa May's deal until he sp spotted a chance to bring her down. And then he didn't back it. Um, so Boris Johnson is in no ways committed ideologically to Brexit in the way that the European Research Group and his party are, uh, in the way that the DUP are. And yeah, maybe there is cause for hope in that. But that is in the context of a politics that is poisoned by untruth and in which we can't have an honest conversation. And I worry about our ability to uh, function as a democracy and to negotiate any kind of decent deal with Europe when this kind of lying is so systemic. Finally, from your perspective, do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? Do you see a, a potential outcome out of this general election that could get you to, whether it be, as you describe, a Norway-style relationship or uh, a more civilised political discourse to look at this whole issue in a different way? Well, undoubtedly, as you said earlier, the only way that could be achieved is by a coalition of Labour, Lib Dems, SNP, potentially Greens as well, and Plaid Cymru and so on. So um, that is the only way that we could get to a more satisfactory outcome. I think at this point, I don't like to say it, but I think we'll probably end up leaving and the best we can hope for is staying in the single market. Um is there a chance, as you suggested earlier, that Boris Johnson could, you know, basically do a U-turn and in order to um, make life easier for himself, uh, forge a closer deal with Europe? 
No, I don't think that there is because he is still in uh, a hostage to his party. He is still a hostage to the hardliners in his party, and is remember that he has kicked out a lot of the moderates. Um, they're all they've all either left the party or are standing as independents, and he will struggle despite his own instincts to uh, to um, get something done and you know have this oven ready deal. He will struggle to compromise because his party will keep on pushing for as hard and tough a Brexit as possible. And I don't think he has quite realised yet how difficult that will be. The European issue has brought down um, all of his predecessors for the past, uh, uh, go, going back going back to John Major and going even back arguably to Margaret Thatcher. And it may well bring him down as well. Roz, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Roz. Thanks to Olivia and Jennifer for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, who's making her debut on today's show, and to JJ Vernon on the desk. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com, and I do answer a lot of the time. And you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.